Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Since the autumnal equinox in September, our days have become shorter. And here on the East Coast, outside the nation's capital, the signs of fall are everywhere, along with reminders that an annual ritual is approaching. Hello. Oh my, what are you? Can I guess? Thank you. Welcome. This weekend, I'm attending a neighborhood Halloween party, and for many years, I had a standby black pointy hat, a wig, and a cape. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll remember I grew up in a monotheistic tradition and encountered lots of negative views about all things associated with witches, magic, and pagan practices. In fact, as a kid, I had to beg my mom to let me participate in trick-or-treating. She gave in but had reservations, and many of her friends in our immigrant Muslim community were just opposed to the holiday and the practices associated with it, like begging for candy. So for decades now, dressing up has not only been fun— It has felt like a way to reject fear. But this year, I'm rethinking my comfort level with my go-to costume. Dressing up like a caricature of a witch feels, well, wrong. That's in part because I've gotten to know several young people who identify as Wicca. And what's abundantly clear, witches are not well understood in American culture. There is a couple misconceptions, like devil worship or things like that, which of course no one actually does. But when they come in and they actually see that we're basically just a bunch of very kind hippies who want to have some fruit and have a good party in the woods, then everyone will be happy. In fact, practitioners of witchcraft are part of a larger umbrella of contemporary pagan or neo-pagan religion. That's right, religion. Today, we'll be exploring the lives of those who call themselves witches, pagans, Wiccans, Druids, and everything in between. And it's a diverse group with an array of different spiritual practices and beliefs. We have whole traditions that believe in different gods. We have traditions that don't believe in gods at all. We have traditions that might use spells and magic and others that don't. But all of them find immense spiritual meaning in connecting to these traditions from long past. And some of their practices are gaining popular appeal. This is in sharp contrast to the fears that persist, that somehow being a witch is tantamount to worshiping Satan. That's the biggest misconception, and it just has no basis in reality at all, that they are satanic or demonic in some way. That's Sarah Pike, a professor of comparative religion at California State University, Chico. She says there are all kinds of stereotypes associated with practitioners of modern paganism. And it's not surprising that in many monotheistic traditions, the word pagan was, and often still is, used as a derogatory term. You know, the result of that belief really has been a lot of persecution against pagans, and that continues. You know, people losing custody, you know, losing jobs. You know, there's still a fear of that. And I think the second one is a kind of trivialization. It's almost the opposite. It's like, oh, they're just playing at, this is just theatrical. They're just playing at this. It's silly. It's it's not, you know, a real religion. Whereas it does have all the elements of religion that we think of, myth and ritual. In short, 
Contemporary paganism is not something to be dismissed from the current American religious landscape. We'll hear more from Pike in a bit. But first, what attracts practitioners? I think I feel safe in saying most people in paganism are converts. That's one convert, David Dashafin Keys of the Washington, D.C. area. I go by Dash because there's a lot of Davids in the world and there's very few Dashafins. Keys, who uses the pronoun they, grew up in a Jewish home and was even bar mitzvahed. We celebrated Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we went to services for the less well-known holidays. Like we were, we were Jews the whole time. But Keyes says their connection to the Jewish tradition was damaged after a particularly embarrassing incident at a service. While reading from the Torah, they forgot what vowel sounds went with which characters. I made it about six words in, failed miserably, burst into tears, and the rabbi oh, or the cantor no. like sh- swooped in to, <laughs> to save the day. That was sort of the point that I started not going to services mm. as much. And I think some of it was just, you know, early teenage rebellion and a lot of embarrassment. But that sort of opened the door a little bit for me to explore because I sort of was like, I don't know that that felt good. Even if it was just embarrassment, I'm going to go see if I can find something else that feels better. Even before that, though, I struggled with an understanding of God in the monotheistic sense when the religion was constantly using male pronouns. And yet the theology was saying that God's beyond gender. So Keys went looking for a new tradition. And then a friend introduced them to Wicca. And he said, you should really read this book. I said, okay. It was Scott Cunningham's Wicca, A Guide to the Solitary Practitioner. And so this is a book that was really geared toward opening up Wicca. And it told you what to do. It told you how to, how to think, how to behave. I think the book is considered pretty much one of the standard sort of Wicca 101 For Keys, they were drawn to a spiritual pagan tradition inspired by the pre-Christian world, specifically ancient Greece. So instead of finding spiritual inspiration in a scriptural source like the Bible or the Torah, I look to the cultures of usually sort of Mediterranean areas. So for me, though, Greek mythology has always been fascinating and important, and it's, it's an interesting topic just to learn about. But... For me, I actually believe in these gods and goddesses. I work with these gods and goddesses. I have shrines to them in my house. And so that's where I gather my spiritual inspiration. That's where I gather the the meat of my spiritual meal. Keys even keeps a small shrine on their fireplace mantle. To Hestia, who's the goddess of hearth, of home in Greek mythologies. He says they also appreciated the emphasis on personal empowerment in many pagan traditions. For instance, they point to the difference between prayer in traditional belief systems and spell work in pagan practices. Prayer always involves intercession. There's always another entity out there to whom you're praying. Whereas in spell work, it can just be you. It can be your own personal power, your own self-empowerment. And... That was something that I didn't always hear in other faith practices as I was learning about spirituality through high school. You didn't encounter a sense that you, the individual, are powerful. You, the individual, can lead. But perhaps the most important pagan concept Keyes learned was the belief in the interconnectedness among all people. We are all in some way neighbors. We are all in some way family, if you go out far enough, that There's no way to make a change in one place that isn't affecting the other place next door. It's sort of our version of of the golden rule. Not do unto others as as 
you would have them do unto you, but we're all connected. We're all neighbors. We're all important. Be wonderful to each other. Because so many pagans are solitary practitioners, and because their numbers globally are so small, Keyes says it's often hard to connect with other pagans. Most find community on the internet. But Keyes was lucky. They found the Firefly House. It describes itself as a, quote, pan-pagan organization and tradition of Wiccans, witches, polytheists, and magic workers in Washington, D.C. The group started about a dozen years ago in Ohio and later moved to D.C., establishing a coven. But Keyes explains that covens, or gatherings or associations of witches, are pretty big commitments. And many people coming to the Firefly House, like Keyes, wanted something a little less intense, but more formal than just a meetup group. So we decided to create what we now term uh, the outer court or the initiates. So the initiates, we basically volunteer to organize events, host meetings maybe at our houses or to arrange places at libraries and things like that for our workshops and do a lot of the logistical work of keeping the organization going, uh, running our education classes, hosting our ceremonies, even authoring, writing the rituals that we might do at a holiday ceremony. Pagans celebrate eight major holidays, part of what is known as the, quote, wheel of the year. If you can imagine a wheel with eight spokes, each holiday is one of those spokes, like Halloween. For pagans, it's not about the costumes and scary movies seen in popular culture. Key says it's actually a sacred time to connect with one's ancestors. Speaking from a Wiccan context, because that's what I know, Halloween is, a, is one of our holidays. We usually refer to it as Samhain. It's solemn. It's a little bit less celebratory. So Samhain is a feast of the dead. It is the day on which the veil between the living and the dead is the thinnest. So you have a lot of ancestor work going on. In the Firefly House, we build a huge ancestor altar. We ask initiates to all get together. We put pictures and names, both our actual like chromosomal ancestors, but even people that are just important to us that have passed on, what we call ancestors of blood versus ancestors of spirit. And we just build this huge altar to all of these people and we light candles and it looks fantastic. Of course, as Keyes mentioned before, the way these holidays are celebrated can differ between pagan groups or individuals. That's because of the great variety among practitioners. Some are polytheistic. Some follow a nature-based spirituality. Some are even monotheistic or atheist that practice in a pagan way, have a pagan sensibility about life, but don't believe the supernatural side of things as much. As you can see, there's no straightforward definition of the word pagan. There is no singular contemporary pagan identity. So it's hard to make generalizations about modern paganism. So almost anything I say, there might be some exceptions. So these are going to be general trends that I'm talking about. That's Sarah Pike again, the professor of comparative religion at California State University, Chico. She's been studying modern paganism and all of the practices that fall under it since the 1990s. Pike tells me via Skype that one of the few commonalities that does exist is that modern-day paganism revives pre-Christian spiritual practices. The biggest ones are sort of Wicca and witchcraft, but after that I would say the Druidism, those are recreating pre-Christian traditions of the British Isles, and there are many different groups in that tradition. And then Slavic paganism, so again, really focusing on those countries in Europe, uh, Norse paganism or Asatru, 
which is, you know, drawing from the Eddas, those Norse sagas about Odin and Freya and those that pantheon of deities. There's Italian as well. Pick almost any country uh, in Europe particularly and look at its pre-Christian tradition. There's probably a group that's reviving it or reimagining it. So how did the modern pagan movement begin in the U.S.? Pike explains. The modern pagan movement started in uh, around the 1950s, but really got underway in the 1960s and 70s here in North America, particularly. And that was influenced by the environmental movement and the feminist movement. It's really inclusive of many contemporary movements since the 1960s or so that are recreating, reimagining, reconstructing to some extent the past. Almost all of them are earth-based, not every single one, but for the most part, they're earth-based. And so they create rituals and ceremonies around the cycles of the season. So that was an important part of those pre-Christian indigenous traditions. Obviously, they were living more closely to the land than we do today. And so that that awareness of the changes of the seasons and then trying to map that onto the changes in, in human lives, that's been really important for most of these traditions. Are there things that connect the various communities that you've just described? Most of them are polytheistic to some extent. Some of them do have an idea of a, of a great goddess, for example. Um, some have a god and a goddess together. But most of them do believe in either a pantheon of deities or that there are multiple spiritual beings. Some might be more important than others, right? So for the most part, they are animistic religions. So they believe that the world around us is animated by spiritual power. There are a few groups that would describe themselves as being monotheistic, but it doesn't tend to be a god. That's rare. It's it's more likely to be a goddess. And that's partly an influence of the feminist movement. So you have some feminist forms of witchcraft or Wicca in particular that really focus on that goddess. But again, they tend to acknowledge that there are other spiritual beings out there. So while I wouldn't you know narrowly classify them, ne- you you know, as all polytheists, they tend in that direction. And and I guess that's the way that I think of this broad tender umbrella of, of modern paganism, is that there are tendencies and trends that many of them share that connect them. And so that would be that animism, that sense of spirit all around us. It would include um, the focus on the natural world, the emphasis on the cycle of the seasons. Um, that's common to almost all uh, modern pagan traditions. Talk to me a little bit about how it is organized mm-hmm. in the United States in particular. It is very decentralized, especially in the U.S., but really pretty much everywhere. There tend to be networks and federations that might cooperate, but there's no central body. I mean, these traditions, many of them have no founder. Many of them have no central sacred text, as Judaism, Christianity, Islam do, and even Hinduism, which is very diverse, has some texts that are shared there's nothing like that in modern paganism. So much of it is is based on archaeological records and reconstruction and reimagination. Um, so there's no central organization in these networks. I mean, let's say there's some ethical issue that comes up. Um, there tend to be discussions on the internet. Um, they do have gatherings, festivals that many will attend from different traditions. So some things get you know discussed there, but there's no sort of decision-making body that says, well, you know, all pagan groups must be you know must believe this or you know must you know not do this. I mean, they they fall across the political spectrum. 
they're really small local groups that can develop their own sort of sense of, you know, politics if they're interested in that. Many groups are apolitical. When I was doing research at contemporary pagan festivals, I mean, it's a very diverse community, even in, in, you know, those people that would come out to a festival, say, you know, 400 people, among them would be people in the military, some conservatives, some not, there would be nurses, there would be folks in computer jobs, and there would be, you know, massage therapists and psychics. So it's, you know, very diverse in terms of career, in terms of, of politics. Is there a growing interest in modern paganism today? And if so, what do you think is attributed to that growth? One of the trends that's happened is the increasing number of Americans that identify as spiritual but not religious and may blend, you know, some aspects of pagan traditions with other identities. I mean, I've met people who were Catholic and pagan. I mean, they weren't necessarily following the church's teachings, but they were still practicing some form of Catholicism in their personal lives, but incorporating some pagan elements. So I think that's happening a lot, these sort of hybrid and multiple spiritual identities, particularly in in the U.S. I would say, from what I've seen, it's holding even in terms of a membership, a self-identified, I'm a pagan. It's pretty static, maybe some growth, but a lot of growth in that the sort of blended identities that I'm talking about or, you know, people that might call themselves pagan with a small p but don't identify as Wiccan or Druid or a specific tradition. As comparative religion professor Sarah Pike explained, many people from a variety of religious backgrounds are curious about paganism, want to know more about the tradition, and in some cases are adopting its practices. Coming up, we'll meet a group that's trying to lift the veil on paganism while creating an open space for practitioners to find community. We take you out to a pagan ritual next on Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Modern paganism is a rich tradition filled with diverse beliefs and distinct practices. 
And while it's growing, many misconceptions remain. That's why the Firefly House, the pan-pagan organization in Washington, D.C., makes many of its events open to anyone who wants to learn more about its traditions. During the pandemic, the Firefly House moved its programs online. Now they're making plans to gather again in person. In the coming weeks, they will meet at a camp to celebrate the festival Sahin. Back in 2018, producers Stephanie Lecce and Melissa Fato traveled to Northern Virginia when the group gathered to celebrate Maybon, the autumnal equinox. Melissa Fato brings us that story. Even though it officially becomes fall on this day, it's still pretty warm and the air is heavy with humidity. Initiate David Dashafin Keys shows me around the area where the Firefly House is holding a three-day retreat. We're in uh, Prince William National Forest Park. We're in one of their cabin campgrounds, so we are sort of in a forest clearing. There's some trees strewn about that clearing. A group of about 10 people are gathered around a fire pit in the camp, while about 30 more are tucked away in one of the cabins. The National Forest puts a fire ring down. We had to bring our own wood in because it was just a little bit too wet to find too much deadfall to try to use what was already here. So we brought our own. The fire is not yet lit, but the logs are dressed with what looks like a variety of herbs and dried plants. And that's because this is no normal fire pit. Later, this will be lit as a sacred fire to mark the Maybon holiday. Other preparations include an altar. We have uh, low to the ground, sort of at kneeling height, a small chest that over top of it we've placed sort of a wine-dark cloth. Around that we've placed some fall leaves. They're a garland, like just fake. We didn't. We, it's too early in the season to get a lot of fall-colored leaves. On the back we have three pillar votive candles, like the seven-day candles. And in front of the candles then, sort of in the middle of that chest, we have a statue of the Greek goddess Persephone. Persephone is the goddess of spring. She's also the queen of the underworld. She is the wife of Hades. So our ritual today is in honor of Persephone here as she descends into the underworld for the colder, darker months of the year. So she takes place of honor this weekend for us here on the altar space. We also have some incense burning, stuff like that, just to sort of create a little bit more of a spiritual sense here around the altar, as well as a pentacle, the five-pointed star in a circle that we put on the altar, which is uh, one of the symbols that are often used by Wiccans as a symbol of our faith. But the main attraction today is the ritual itself. David Salisbury will lead it. After all, he wrote the script that will be used. He says the main theme for this year's ritual is recognizing one's own lightness and darkness. In many religious traditions and wonderful spiritual traditions around the world, one's inner darkness is something that should either be ignored or even banished or discarded. You know, the goal is to evolve past your darkness. But in the craft, we try to avoid anything that discards our power. Right, So nothing within us is profane, including our darkness, and the darkness can teach us a lot. So the dark part of the year is often a lot about, you know, turning inward and working on yourself or working on, some people will say, your shadow self or your shadow side. That's Mason Davenport. What has been built over the year? What am I going to take from that? And what, and what am I going to store, right? What am I going to store in order to have it next year, in order to sow it and to harvest it again? Davenport is a member of a different pan-pagan group in D.C., the mainly druid San Asuk. For me, druidry is it's just focused on being alive and in tune and 
connected to all of the other living beings and non-living beings for that matter that exist on this beautiful crazy wonderful planet with us Part of creating those connections includes building community, which is why the Druid group is sharing the Firefly House's Maybond ritual. Because paganism is often a solitary practice, Davenport says rituals offer a chance to worship in a community setting. That feeling and that energy that can be raised with others can't, I don't think you can replicate that by yourself. And it is, for me anyway, largely about community and harvesting from the community what we've built together and what we want to continue to build. Moen Michelle is the founder of the San Osik community. She says it's important to mark the seasons. For our faith, um, many of us are animists, right? So we don't necessarily believe in gods or goddesses or a god form, but we do believe that the natural cycles that have formed us as humans are really central in a deeply psychological, deeply spiritual way. And that recognizing the passage of time on a yearly basis is a, just a... It's an ancient practice. It's a foundational practice. Michelle says rituals can also bring a sense of restoration. Everyone I know is really feeling tired and overwhelmed right now by the state of the world, by national politics. I'm very socially active. I'm very much an activist. So for me today is about just finding that stillness within that allows me to relax enough to refresh and renew and to be committed to what I do in the world every day and to go out and make change and um, be better. That activism is important not only to Michelle, but also many members of the Firefly House. And Salisbury, the Maybon ritual leader, says recognizing and harnessing those dark and light parts of oneself is essential to being a strong activist. So in our ritual today, we focused on calling upon our inner darkness and our inner light to understand ourselves because we believe that we can't change the world around us unless we can change the world within us first. So we take a practical approach to activism as well as a deeply spiritual religious approach. Which is why he's worked so hard on the ritual at hand, even though he claims he's not a creative type. But ritual writing is an art. It's something that, when done right, is a very creative process, not just for you, but your resulting product uh, must inspire creativity, some sort of emotion or change within someone. Otherwise, it's just people sitting in a pew listening to you know their, their preacher. But here in the forest, there are no pews to be found. Instead, everyone is waiting to be called into a circle to begin the ritual. And that's the job of the so-called town yeller, a position held by a new initiate of the Firefly House, Kiora Fraser. She will call the quarters, literally calling out east, south, west, and north parts of the compass rose. And she will perform a hundred-plus-year-old occult practice now used in modern Wicca called circle casting. That means I'm going to cast a circle around all of the participants in today's rite and create a safe and powerful space for us to bring blessings and give energy back to the earth and thank for all the energy it has given to us. To do this, she uses a tool that looks like a small silver knife. What I am holding is a silver athame of the goddess. So she has the swirl on her stomach and her arms above her head, and she is technically cradling the knife. Now, the athame is a witch's tool. It comes to 
how do I say this, direct energy. You could akin it to a wand, but it's not the same thing. It's more bringing energy from up or down into a space. And I'm using it to cast the circle today. With everyone circling the altar in the clearing, Salisbury instructs them to summon the dark and light parts of themselves. So I asked you to conjure up those disparate parts of yourself within your body because today, which is actually the real autumnal equinox, we're going to harness the power of this day to bring those disparate parts into alignment. In the middle of the altar are pomegranates and apples at the foot of a small white statue. It's Persephone, a deity from Greek mythology who, as the story goes, was kidnapped by the god Hades, forced to marry and become queen of the underworld. Persephone isn't traditionally associated with Mabon, but this is where the ritual writer Salisbury showed his creativity. In the lore, Demeter, her mother, she's the goddess of the earth and all growing things. And when her daughter goes missing, she grieves. She's trying to look for her. She essentially tells all beings on the earth, if I can't have my daughter, then you don't get to have sunshine and spring and a harvest. So she casts the earth into darkness. Humans begin to starve. The gods needing offerings from humans to survive say, Demeter, what can we do? We need, we need you to reverse all of this. What can we do to bring Persephone back? And Demeter is personally approached by Zeus. And he says, well, let's negotiate here. The king of the underworld can keep her for roughly half of the year because she has eaten six seeds from the pomegranate, forbidden fruit of the underworld. For the remaining months, she's allowed to return. And the pomegranate is the symbol of these mysteries. So what we're going to be doing is taking fruits representing death and the descent, the pomegranate, as well as apples, fruits representing life, uh, the richness of the upper world and the heavens, one by one, each participant takes a piece of the pomegranate and eats a seed. Above and below, as you descend to the land of the shades, we call upon you to draw ever closer. They then take turns walking forward to the statue and crush the piece of pomegranate over Persephone as an offering. The thick red juice slides down her white form the seeds collecting on the earth around her. So the squeezing of the pomegranate is our offering back to the earth. So in many magical systems, everything should be an exchange in some way. So we're asking for something, we're also giving something back. You know, it's how energy works. You know, it's neither created nor destroyed. The people in the circle then eat a slice of apple. And as you bite into that apple and you taste that, that bitter sweetness, Think about life and those upper-worldly powers that you summoned in your body. Salisbury then calls on each person to call aloud the phrase, so mote it be, a common way to end Wiccan and pagan prayers and spells. So mote it be. 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 Meanwhile, the town yeller opens up the circle again. So mote it be. Guardians of the North, South, East, and West, thank you for joining us today in this rite. I now close the circle, opening it to all who came. Thank you for being there. East, we thank you. West, we thank you. South, we thank you. And as I return to my place at the beginning, the circle is open. 
As the circle breaks up, it's clear that the Maybon celebration brought in folks from all walks of life. And many aren't members of the Firefly House. Like Wilson Freeman, who is currently a member of an Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, lodge. Adherents, known as Thelemites, follow a philosophy created by English occultist Aleister Crowley in the early 20th century. Unlike many pagans, Freeman wasn't raised with any religion. So, ritual and faith for him have always been an open experiment. Though he's currently involved in the OTO, his practice is a highly eclectic one and very individualized. I actually was writing about this the other day. It's very hard for me to really identify, like if I somebody asked what my religion was, because to me, a religion is a series of practices, and my practices don't fit any of the things that I actually am involved in. It's kind of I've taken little bits and pieces of everything. Um, most of the groups that I belong to, and OTO is a good example, kind of allow people to, like there is no standard necessarily of practices. It's like these are things we suggest that you do, but it's not required. And so, like, I'd say my personal practices and beliefs are kind of somewhere in a combination of Shingun Buddhism, Druidry, and actually Quakerism. I was involved in a Quaker meeting for a long time. And all of those things, there's kind of elements of all of those things in Thelema. So that's kind of why I've been drawn to that particular path. Everything I do is very meaningful to me, because if it's not meaningful to me, I don't do it. But Freeman says there's a downside to this DIY spirituality. The flip side of kind of having your own system is that you you kind of share it with yourself alone. That's why community is so important for the folks here. Because even if each person is practicing their spirituality in a different way, at least they can do it with like-minded, accepting people. Freeman points out that pagan practices can be really appealing to women, people of color, and those identifying as LGBTQ. I'd say because traditionally... Pagan practices tend to be more like gender equal. They tend to be more accepting or even referencing directly of things like same-sex relationships. And there's a lot of, you know, goddess worship and that kind of thing. So women tend to find it very empowering. Whereas with Judeo-Christian religions, it's very paternalistic. It's very kind of top-down, very male-centric. Pagan religions tend to be more kind of lateral. It's, it's less hierarchical. There's more of an equal focus on men and women. There's more roles for people who are kind of outside of a gender binary, that kind of thing. Jamie Panetta agrees. Like Freeman, she's not a member of the Firefly House. And she's not even pagan. But she came to the Maybon celebration to see if the tradition might meet her spiritual needs while respecting her cultural identity. A lot of folks who identify as folks of color, particularly queer and trans folks, are practicing different spiritual traditions as a way of decolonizing their practices and their identities. So my family's from the Philippines, which was colonized by Spain and also by the U.S. through imperialism. And a lot of our spiritual traditions were either stripped away because of Catholicism or um, different value systems placed on top of that. So for me, it's very resistance-oriented and very social justice-oriented to not practice something like Catholicism and actually try to investigate my own indigeneity. But because many branches of neo-paganism are based on European mythology, these communities can often be, well, mostly white. Kiora Fraser, the town yeller from The Ritual, says the Firefly House makes space for diverse experiences. She herself practices African Wicca. 
I hope to bring a little bit more awareness to the kind of intersectionality that I technically represent. So I'm like black people who also practice Wicca or witchcraft, who also have like the kind of Afrocentric background. I want to show everybody that you can be all three. I mean, in the, both the black community and the normal pagan community, there's a kind of you have to pick one kind of thought. And Firefly is very much of make your own amalgamate. And I like that about them. Frazier says that African Wicca has its own distinct flair. We have different deities that I would pray to because I have ones that my family has been praying to for like centuries. And so Firefly has been Greek in origin. But they are a pagan group, so we have multiple people who have multiple deities that choose to connect with. Because there's so many different people with different backgrounds in Firefly, we have a chance to have everybody have a little info session or class for each individual's way of praying to their god or goddess. It's very nice. I like it. While a few of the Firefly House's practices are only open to initiates, most of their info sessions and classes are available to anyone who's interested. Salisbury says that's on purpose. We pride ourselves on being very open and approachable. Um, A lot of traditions of the craft are very secretive. Um, Part of that is practical um, for religious discrimination reasons. Um, And part of it is that witchcraft is a mystery tradition, right? So there are certain elements that we like to keep secret at certain times to bring people into those mysteries the right way so that they get an experience that, you know, deepens their practice and their understanding of the divine. So in our system, we do as much as we can public, and we go all out with how public that is. Salisbury says that by doing so, the Firefly House can be a space to demystify and destigmatize pan-pagan traditions. For Interfaith Voices, I'm Melissa Fato. Coming up next on Inspired, though pagans with a capital P are by far a religious minority in the United States, we'll learn how more and more Americans from other traditions are incorporating pagan spiritual practices and why crystals, tarot cards, and a focus on nature are becoming more prevalent. Stay with us. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. The Pew Research Center says that only 0.4%, that's about 1.3 million Americans, identify as part of a New Age religion such as witchcraft, Wicca, Druidism, and paganism. But many spiritual practices associated with these religions are being adopted by Americans across the religious spectrum. California State University Chico comparative religion professor Sarah Pike says increasing numbers of people today are turning to originally pagan practices, whether they identify as pagan or not. One explanation she offers is that people are looking for a more tangible way to connect to their spirituality. You know, it's a it's a reaction against some of the Protestantization of, <laughs> you know, the the world or or certainly of of western culture of the loss of a kind of you know direct sensual contact with things with candles with incense you know that being able to smell and taste and feel religion in that sensory way i think is something that many people feel they lost but they don't necessarily want to go back to 
you know, Russian Orthodoxy or, you know, Roman Catholicism, they're looking for something else that might bring that richness into their lives. And even if they are Protestant, they may have an altar at home that has crystals on it or, you know, it's, again, I think that desire to be connected to the material world in some way seems a reaction against the sort of disconnection and disenchantment of the world around us. And some of this may have to do with our increasing awareness of environmental crisis. I mean, that's hard to escape these days. I think even my students, when I talk to them, so many of them see nature as their sacred place now, even regardless of whether they're Christian or pagan or Hindu, that being in nature, being connected to the material world, then translates into that uh, relationship with objects. And these more sort of supernatural beliefs that never really went away, but were sort of underground, I think, in in the U.S. Pew released the Religious Typology Study, which splits Americans into seven groups of religious and non-religious practice, from Sunday stalwarts to solidly secular. We'll get into that study another time. But one surprising finding is that New Age beliefs are common across the spectrum, even among very traditionally religious Americans. Pew describes these beliefs as, quote, the belief in psychics, astrology, reincarnation, and the belief that spiritual energy can be contained in physical objects like trees, mountains, and crystals. Now, owning a few crystals or getting into reading tarot cards doesn't make anyone a witch. But these are all common components of the spiritual practice of many who identify as witches or pagans. And as our next guest, Gabriella Hurstick says, witchcraft is for everyone. Yeah, you can be any religion and work with witchcraft. It's just a different way of kind of seeing things and working with things. Hurstick is a witch and writer living in Los Angeles. She writes the Ask a Witch column for Nylon and is the author of the book Inner Witch, A Modern Guide to the Ancient Craft. She explains that there isn't really any set of beliefs one needs to have to practice witchcraft. While some consider it to be a part of their religion and may worship certain deities, she thinks of the craft itself as a set of spiritual practices. And she says a lot of people might benefit from them. Witchcraft itself, I like to think of it as like a nature-based spiritual path. You don't have to believe in any certain deities or gods. It's really just a way to work with nature and her cycles as well as her own cycles and energy, um, as well as magic, which I define as energy plus action plus intention. Um, but for some people like myself, it is a part of our religion, but that it, that it doesn't have to be. Like You can be a witch and be of any faith. And I think that's one of the amazing things about the craft is that it's something that you can tailor for your passions and where you live and like what your ancestry is or whatever religion you grew up in. Like There's so, much, there's so many ways to make it a personal thing, which I think just makes any spiritual or religious practice even stronger. Our producer, Melissa Fato, sat down with Herstic to discuss her guide to modern witchcraft. Early in her book, Herstic writes, quote, you don't become a witch. You remember that you are one. I was like 11 or 12 and I was like, I believe in goddesses. And it, if, for me, it just felt like a natural transition. I thought I've never believed that God is a man in the clouds. Like that's mm-hmm. just something that like has never spoken to me. It just made sense and I followed it and I never questioned it. So I'd like to actually hear more about your path, how you answered that call. Tell me the story. How did you come to identify as a witch? So I grew up with a mother who was 
always kind of into like esoteric practices. She always did yoga. I grew up around her meditating and working with crystals, but she never called herself a witch. Like that was never part of her identity, but she gave me a crystal when I was little, like found me at like age two holding a little crystal pyramid. She had given me like telling myself to breathe in and breathe out when I was angry at my sister because she had told me to do that. And there's all these kind of little instances of when I was a child that I was just like, this like weird hippie kid kind of crystal child um <laughs> my dad's a reform rabbi and my background in the city is jewish and i grew up around that faith but he really fostered my curiosity for the unknown so we'd have discussions about god and death and all that kind of stuff so i've always kind of been intrigued by the unknown and the unseen and the spiritual realm in general so you are ethnically jewish your yes. mother is Mexican? Yes, she grew up in the Jewish community in Mexico City, which mm. exists. <laughs> so how do you square those two identities with your yeah. identity as a witch as well? So this is something I'm still figuring out. I don't identify as Jewish religiously, but it's a culture and it's where I come from. And it's always going to be, you know, my culture and my background and my ethnicities. I've resisted kind of mixing my background with Judaism with the craft for a long time and it's still something I'm figuring out now I kind of work with Kabbalah as a part of my practice but more of um like some of like the more esoteric ideas versus like the religious parts of it and I'm still figuring that out I mean I love Fridays and I always like candle like I always do a lot of magic on Fridays but I don't call it Shabbat so I'm still kind of unpacking that just because I was I grew up around that faith so, so much, and I was I always had the identity of a rabbi's daughter. As far as my Mexican side, again, my family is from the Jewish community in Mexico City, so it's not really like the brujeria part of, of Mexico. That's something that i like really aware with my mom. Like My dad was born in Israel, but he grew up here, and his he kind of understood like what I was practicing more early on than my mom. And for her, it was just, I get it. Just like witchcraft in Mexico is just, it's a lot more loaded. I understand that, especially now as an adult, I'm like, okay, this makes sense that you were kind of like cautious about me adopting this term because for you, it's like, it, it comes with a different set of ideas because of, yeah, the culture. Do you see more young women and folks who identify as women being drawn to witchcraft today? And why? Oh my god, absolutely. I think this this is a question I get a lot and it's always my answer is always hell yeah. I mean, there's always gonna be people that are trying to find their their own power when they feel powerless, right? And right now with the current administration, a lot of young women and women and femme identifying people and we're put in this climate where we don't really feel like we have control over our bodies or ourselves. And I think that a lot of us are turning to these earth-based spiritual practices because one, it's this like ancient thing that our ancestors did. And when you sit, when if you're a woman and you sit in a circle with other women and like share stories and create a sacred space, like you feel that. It feels like coming home to something, working with the moon, working with the earth, working with magic. These are all things that, first off, don't cost any money. Like, it's dope to have crystals or tarot cards, and I think that there's a time and space for that, and those things are, you know, can be very helpful for us. But at the end of the day, like, you don't need those things to be a witch. You don't need those things to be able to, like, 
claim your power and live from a place of like grounded purpose. And I think witchcraft really delivers that. It's it's a way to reclaim yourself. It's a way to move through this world with more control over over your energy and the way that you're interacting with other people's energy. And it's just, I think it it's just empowering. So in your book, you write a bit about what you call, quote, spiritual activism and witchcraft's mm-hmm. involvement in that. Can you explain that? I think for me, spiritual activism is like getting your internal world settled, figuring out your voice. So that way, each person that you touch, like, is changed or shifted. It's like doing the internal work before you go out and do the the real work. If you're not in your power, you're not going to be able to be as helpful for other people. You know, you can only give as much as you have and you don't want to be like a a well that's just dry. You want to be a cup that's overflowing with enough for everybody. For me, it might be something like making sure that like I'm emotionally ready, like going to therapy, taking a salt bath with lavender and really just being present, like my meditation practice, all of those kind of things that are going to allow me to be more grounded and like more centered in myself, like any mindfulness practice, whether it's yoga or journaling or ecstatic dancing. And then you can do something like create an altar if there's like a certain group of people or persons that you really want to send healing towards. You're having your own sense of balance, I think, is only going to make you a more... um, impactful activist. So another practice that you write about in the book is goddesses. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I would assume that the reason why some women are drawn to witchcraft is also because of the divine feminine. How does goddess worship work? And is it worship at all? Or is it a different kind of relationship? I call it goddess worship, but that worship might be loaded for some people. For me, it's an intentional relationship that you cultivate with a deity, and that's through creating a space, like an altar to them or something dedicated to them where you can pray, you can leave notes, you can leave offerings. It's just to kind of form a more intentional environment to cultivate that again, relationship. And when I say relationship, I mean, like, it can be anything from like creating art for the goddess, having a ritual that you do repetitively, speaking to her, praying, making art. Personally, I work a lot with the goddess Venus. She's my matron goddess or like the main goddess I work with. And I work a lot with fashion and glamour with her since she rules. She's that's like one of her things is fashion and beauty. She's obviously the goddess of love. So I do a lot of work around her with self-love, loving others, all that kind of stuff. And I make a lot of art for her. I'll write poetry. I'll do specific like love and sex magic rituals. A lot of us grew up in patriarchal societies where we don't even have space to like explore this divine feminine and it's going to look different to everybody. Like you can totally just worship goddesses like an entity and an energy and have that, or you can worship specific goddesses. Gabriella Herstick is the author of Inner Witch, Bewitching the Elements and Embody Your Magic. She is based in Los Angeles and is a devotee to the goddess of love. This conversation was recorded back in 2018 with producer Melissa Fato. That's all for this week's show. The original episode was produced by Stephanie Lecce, Melissa Fato, and Lauren Marco. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan, wherever you are. I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And I hope you stay connected.